Due to budget cuts affecting the Verifineal Flex Corium, today's episode of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast will sound different in certain important aspects. The engineering room apologizes for the inconvenience. Welcome to episode 53 of the Charles C.W. Cook podcast. It's February 2nd. Did you know that if you... A full-grown manatee can weigh up to 1,200 pounds. Dispatch 11 from the podcast engineering room. Charlie. The vocal tentrometer is gone and the windesing Achtfraum has lost all oil pressure. Not to mention the 10-man casualty with the H-pack, but I know you don't care about the men, you care about the podcast. We're looking at a meltdown, Charlie, a real deal meltdown. I'm sorry about that. I don't know what happened, but just to be sure, I have had Luther shot. I want to dedicate this week's episode to a persistent commenter on this podcast in the Apple Podcasts app whose screen name, hello, is Boiling Rug. Now, at various points since I started this, I've made the joke that if you're still listening to this show after 50 episodes, and you hate it, then you might want to have your head checked out. And Boiling Rug, who hates this show, but keeps listening, quite literally fits that description, which is pretty impressive. So congratulations. Welcome. It's less impressive, though, than his commitment to listening to the Editor's Podcast, which is the other podcast I'm on, which is now released 618 episodes, many of which have bad reviews from Boiling Rug. So my hat goes off to you, sir. You are a man among men, and keep practicing the recorder. Before I get to my guest this week, I want to tell you about a podcast. Our friends at the Competitive Enterprise Institute are back with new episodes of their breakout How the World Works podcast, which is hosted by author and political commentator and former mad dog, Kevin Williamson. If you're not already listening to that show, what's wrong with you? Not you, Boiling Rug. You should be. Because each episode, Kevin sits down with notable guests for candid conversations about the jobs that they've had and the role of work in the economy and our social lives. From flipping burgers and tending pigs on a farm to leading special ops missions in far corners of the globe, some of America's best thinkers discuss the jobs that they've had that have informed their outlook on life and future careers. In a recent episode, Kevin sat down with Jonah Goldberg. They are old friends and colleagues of National Review, friends of mine, not friends of Boiling Rugs, for a fascinating conversation about the ins and outs of Jonah's decades-long career in the media. So make sure you listen to How the World Works wherever you listen to podcasts or visit cei.org forward slash how the world works. That's cei.org forward slash how the world works. 
My guest today is Timothy B. Lee, the author of the Understanding AI newsletter, which is at understandingai.org, where you can find it through the Substack search function. Timothy, welcome to the Charles C. W. Cook podcast. Hi there. Thanks for having me on. All right. So let's go right back to the beginning here and start with the most obvious of questions. What is AI? When people use these two letters next to each other to signify something, what are they referring to? So it stands for artificial intelligence, of course. And I would say it has a little bit of a vague meaning. Uh, People have been using it for, I think, since the 1950s to describe software that can do things that are intelligent, that have kind of a human level of intelligence. And I think the exact bar for that has never been super clear. I mean, you have things like playing chess, for example, which was a a major AI challenge in the 20th century. And then in the late 20th century, around 1997, there was a famous game with Gary Kasparov where they, you know, computer beat uh, Gary Kasparov at chess. So that's like an example of AI where clearly it surpassed human levels of performance, but there's lots of other things humans might be able to do, that humans are able to do that that AI can't do as well yet, but might in the future. Okay, so why is it that in the last two years or so, it seems that everything has suddenly become AI? Every piece of software that I use, whether it's a note-taking app or an email client, offers AI. Now, I'm sure some of that's marketing, but something seems to have happened to launch this term into everyday parlance. Yeah, so there was a big breakthrough in late 2022, OpenAI uh, launched ChatGPT, which is lar- a large language model. And that is a new type of AI system that is able to have natural language conversations, which is something that has always been seen as kind of a holy grail of AI. There's the famous Turing test, which says that you can tell a way to test whether an AI system is at human level is whether you could trick a human in a chat into thinking the other the AI system was a human. And um, I mean, people debate whether today's large language models pass that test, but it is much, much closer to that. It can have much, much more convincing conversations with people than systems that existed before ChatGPT and other large language models came onto the scene. And so I think that's the main reason. There's also another type of model called the diffusion model that can draw very photorealistic pictures that also came out in 2022. So I think those two AI systems, I think, together really convince people that something very significant is happening in this broader field of AI research. And why did both of those come out in 2022? Was there a breakthrough in hardware? Did this... So I would say it's been about 10 years. So, so the, there's always been kind of two approaches to AI. So the, the approach that was popular prior to about 2010 was to try to have people kind of explicitly program in the rules of how things work. So in the 80s, they tried to make these things called expert systems where you try to have something that like diagnosed patients. And they try to have all these rules that say, if the patient has this kind of symptom and that kind of symptom, then have this. And it, it, came out, it turned out that was just way too complicated. It's, there's way too many rules and way too many nuances. And so that didn't work. The alternative view is you just take a bunch of data and you use sort of statistical methods to try to find patterns in the data. And then if you have enough data and complicated enough models, it'll kind of learn from that data. And so in 2012, there was a research project called AlexNet where they built a model where you could show it a picture and it would classify it in one of a thousand different categories like dog or car or something like that. And this has been a competition that's been going for a few years. 
But in 2012, there was a research team that figured out that you could use the graphics processing unit in your computer that's used to render for video games to, to do like high resolution graphics. They figured out that that, was, that had a lot of computing power and you could use that to do much larger models that had than had been possible before. And so somebody really blew the competition out of the water using this um, very data-centric approach to machine learning. So maybe this is a philosophical question as much as it's a technological question, but to what extent is this intelligence in the way that we would think of it as human beings? Now, I mean, perhaps we think human beings are just computers and they just have lots of information and they just logically sort it as well. So perhaps there's no difference. But is this intelligence in the way we normally use the word? Or is this just a higher level of computing that is still at some level subordinate to us and contingent upon what we put into it? So I think one of the things that makes it hard to to think clearly about that question is, it, is before these systems came along, we only had one example of an intelligence system. And so when people talked about intelligence, they just meant whatever characteristics like the human brain had. Right. And so I think people kind of mush together a lot of different concepts under this heading of intelligence. And one of the exciting things I think about the moment we're in is we're now going to have some, some opportunities to kind of clarify our thinking because we can say, well, this system can do this and not that. Do we want to call it intelligence? I mean, you have other words people use, you know, consciousness or sentience, things like that. So yeah, I, th- I think we're, get, we're going to want to clarify our thinking. I mean, the, the thing that I think is really striking about the large language models is that they architecturally, they're really very simple. There's nothing in there that says this is a noun, this is a verb, or has any sort of like database of like facts about the world. The only information it gets as it's going through its training process, the kind of where it learns how to have conversations, it just has a bunch of text scraped off the internet, books, news articles, Wikipedia pages, and so forth. And it really bootstraps from that. It learns the rules of grammar, lots of facts about the world, some pretty complicated stuff. And so in some sense, certainly we created it, we have control over it, we could, there's various ways we can tweak how it works. But nobody, in a, in a deep sense, nobody really designed how it works. Nobody fully understands. It's actually kind of crazy that if you look at it at a kind of micro level inside these models, nobody fully understands like what's going on there. It's kind of a, it's an evolved kind of grown thing that just works, but nobody totally understands why. Now you use that word evolve. Is this improving mm-hmm. on its own in the sense that you let it go, and then it develops? Or is there a yeah. limit to that? Well, it's, it's, I wouldn't go completely on its own. So the process is you have a training process. It's an algorithm where you show it, basically you show it a, an example. And what it's trying to do is it looks at the first few words of, a, of an article, a news article, say, and it tries to guess what the next word is. And if it gets it wrong, it goes back and looks at all the variables in its giant model. There's like billions of variables and tries to figure out which of these variables should I have changed to get the right answer. And it just does that over and over again. So it's, it's evolving in the sense that each example it looks at makes it a little better at the task it's trying to do, which is try to predict how would, you know, how would a human write this article. And so, yeah, it's, it's definitely something people like control. And once you're finished training it, it doesn't keep changing. It's not like, um, like, like ChatGPT doesn't, when you talk to it, it's not, it doesn't remember the conversation. It doesn't get better from having conversations. Um, but during the training process, it's something that's not directly controlled by humans. It's, it's, it's a kind of automated system that's really driven by what's in its training data. So at the moment, what is the most obvious application for this? There's a gimmick here, people like playing with it online, but if you were to survey the 
economy and predict at the current level of AI development, what is it most useful for? I think people are trying it on many different fronts simultaneously. And to answer your question, a little bit depends on what we're talking about. So with large language models in particular, um, I think the two things that are people are have the most mature applications. One is translation. So the translation industry, um, there are a lot of machine translation applications that are derived from or similar to large language models. There are these agencies that will you'll give them an English text, they'll give you a Spanish text or a French text. Um, those agencies now use large language models, and there'll be different prices. You can pay a high price to have a wholly human one. You can pay a lower price to have one where the, the language model generates an answer that a human checks it, or there's, you know, there's free ones so you can get. So that's one. Another is coding. A lot of programmers will use basically very fancy autocomplete where you'll write a brief comment saying, here's what I want this function to do, and they'll write the function. And 80 90% of the time, it'll come out with the right function. And that is now very widely used among programmers. I think there's, there's millions and millions of people that are using that. So I would say those are the ones that are most... Um, most developed, but because it's only been about a year, a little more than a year since this technology came out, lots of other people are trying to build systems. And one of the things I think a lot of companies are trying to build is fancier search. So rather than just having an internal search engine, they want a system that's trained on all of their private. If you have a big company, you have a lot of instruction manuals and corporate memos and financial rules, that sort of stuff. And they want to build a chatbot where you can ask the chatbot questions about all the company's internal data. You know, what's the corporate policy on this or what's a good what's a good like projection for our revenues next year, stuff like that. And people are trying to build those systems. I think it's too soon to say if those will work because um, a lot of them are still in the prototype stage, but that's kind of a big category. I would also say like call centers is a big one. There's a lot of customer service jobs that are basically scripted. If you call your cable company, for example, because your internet doesn't work, um, like those people are basically following the script anyway. And so um, it's very possible that, uh, and then a lot of companies are working on systems that will have a completely automated virtual voice do that. So that, that's some examples, but I think it's, it's very new in a lot of people. I think, I think there's still a lot of experimentation that, that needs to happen. And I think in the next three to five years, you can imagine it being useful in a lot of other areas. One of the criticisms that I have heard, especially from the political right, but also to some extent from the parts of the left that doesn't feel represented within our elite culture is that because these systems are ultimately dependent upon human guidance, that human beings are going to try to encode them with their sense of what is normal or desirable and thereby shut out or diminish the influence of those people they dislike. And I've seen some examples of people asking ChatGPT a question with a right-wing assumption and getting an answer that says, well, I, I can't possibly answer that, or I, I don't agree with that, or that's harmful, and then doing the same thing with a center-left set of assumptions and getting a full response. Uh, is that something that we should be worried about? Or is that already a problem within tech that this is just another example of? I would say more of the latter. I mean, the thing about the chatbots, as you said, it's a little bit of a parlor trick. It's the, the, the kind of pure chatbot. It's not clear that it has a lot of like economic significance. It's a fun tool to use. I mean, there are some ways you can use it, but like, it's not like a uh, highly useful product. It's kind of a fun product. And so if you have a chatbot that'll like answer any question on any topics, obviously, some of the answers are going to be things that people don't like. I think a lot of the other 
uses of AI are not going to have that problem if you've got, uh, again, if your cable company um, replaces its customer service people with AI systems that is just not going to, if you ask it what they think about Donald Trump, it's just going to refuse to answer. So I, I think that it's not, I think it'll matter a lot what you're using it for. There'll be some areas where you're using AI where this will be a concern. And it's an unavoidable concern, right? Because if, obviously, if they built an AI chatbot, and, like I think Elon Musk is doing this with his, he's got a, a chatbot that he's doing kind of because of this concern. I'm sure liberals will use it and say, oh, I'm you know outraged by some of the answers it gives. So I don't think there's any way to make a chatbot that everybody's happy with, but certainly it'll have the same, you'll have the same kind of politics around it that we have with Facebook's moderation or how Google responds to search results or any, anything else. So you've mentioned replacing customer service personnel within, say, a cable company. Are you worried that this is going to lead to mass unemployment or do you think it will be absorbed in much the same way as the internet was? I think, it's, I think the internet's a good model. So, I mean, I think something a lot of people, the, the people who are very optimistic about or pessimistic, depending on your, your view about the impact of this, I think something they tend to forget is that actually most jobs involve interactions with the physical world. There are people who are plumbers, who are nurses, who are school teachers, and all those jobs have some intellectual component to them, but they're also fixing a leaky pipe or administering medicine to a patient, something like that. The number of jobs that are like purely remote or virtual is relatively small. And so, number one, I think that that's the case that there's not going to be mass, mass unemployment because most jobs the AI just can't do. Um, but also, I think people underestimate how long these things take. So, ChatGPT really was a, a kind of startling jump up in capabilities, but it also has significant weaknesses. It is, I, I think one of the biggest ones is it doesn't have any long-term memory. So you'll have a conversation with it and then you'll close the window when you open it again. It doesn't remember anything you talked about it before. And if you think about most kind of white collar jobs, a lot of the value is being able to learn a skill and then do it later. Remember contacts from a previous meeting, stuff like that. And these AI systems can't do anything like that, at least not yet. So I think it'll be a number of years before even most of the kind of computer-based jobs that theoretically could be automated before AI systems are at all competitive in those. And so 10 to 20 years from now, I think it could have a big impact at the labor market. But that is, I think, log enough that it's going to be something where people can kind of adjust gradually and shift into new jobs as AI becomes more powerful. The, the other thing is, I think it's really important to think about tasks rather than jobs. So often what will happen, and I mentioned before that com computer programmers use this, so these code assistants that help programmers write their code is not completely replacing the programmers. It is making them more productive because coder still has to talk to the customer, find out what the customer wants, write documentation, do testing, stuff like that. They're just able to write more code. And so in most cases, that's my expectation is there'll be some aspects of a person's job that AI maybe can do for them or could speed them up a lot, but there's others that they can't. And so people will get more productive. Um, but I think the, the number of jobs that just like, completely go away as a result of AI will be relatively small. It's also sometimes wrong. It's fascinating to use it to help you code. It's helpful, and it knows a lot of rules. But I have found in even basic tasks, for example, the production of a fairly elementary WordPress plugin, that it doesn't know certain rules of the language or the software, and it keeps insisting... <laughs> And you have to work with it to get it yeah. right. And it keeps trying different things. And maybe it'll eventually get it right. Maybe it won't. And you have to tell it, well, no, this line is wrong. And then it takes that rule and it applies it elsewhere. But it's, it's sort of interesting, actually, how often chat GPT gets it wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And I think part of that is because context is really important. So often when it gets something wrong, I mean, sometimes it's just 
totally random. You can't figure out why. But but often when it gets something wrong, there'll be some subtle aspect to the task you're giving it where you know something that the AI system doesn't. And so it'll give you kind of a guess that's based on um, slightly wrong information about what you want or about the domain that you're asking it about. And so, yeah, I, th- I think that's going to be true for a long time that like often the AI will give you a pretty good first draft than yeah. you as the human human worker who has kind of broader and deeper understanding of the topic need to look it over and say, oh, this isn't quite right. And that isn't quite right. And the whole process is still going to be faster than if you wrote the memo or the program or whatever from scratch. But we're still going to want human beings to kind of check their work for a long time. I, I was actually, you were asking what the kind of biggest applications. I think one of the biggest potential applications that's not quite there is in medicine. I mean, there's a few different areas here. I mean, one is, I think there's a lot of potential in drug discovery, where a lot of drug discovery is just coming up with many different possible molecules and trying to figure out which of them work. And it's possible that the AI system will help with that. But also with diagnosis, there's, there's models that seem to be getting close to human level in terms of just like diagnosing diseases but obviously, sometimes they'll make mistakes. And for good reason, I think people are very conservative about trying new technologies for that sort of thing. So I could imagine five or 10 years from now that there'll be really big applications where you know maybe the work of radiologists will be either replaced or significantly augmented by these AI systems. But I think people are getting a little too excited. And I think it's not clear to me that those abilities exist now. And often these things take longer than people expect. So speaking of people getting a little bit excited, I have to ask you about the Doomsday Brigade who make it seem as if there is a real possibility that this thing is going to turn into Skynet and kill us all. And that's not an exaggeration. And there are people out there, I don't know how prominent they are because I don't know the landscape in the way that you do, who have suggested out loud that in two or three years, this thing is going to learn and learn and learn and spiral to such an extent that it could end the world. How worried are you about that? I'm not very worried about that. I, th- I think you're right that those people exist. And they're actually, they're, they're weirdly prominent, I think, because of the kind of the contingency of the way this industry evolved, which is that there were a certain number of people. So there was a, a now famous book called Superintelligence that was written by a philosopher named Nick Bostrom about 10 years ago. And a bunch of very prominent people read that, including Elon Musk and Sam Altman, who were the the original founders of OpenAI, that made this argument that basically once an AI system gets a human level intelligence, it'll then be able to kind of modify its own programming and get smarter and smarter. And so within a matter of you know weeks or months, it might get way smarter than humans and then it'll like take over the world. And so that, I think, because most people read that book and said, oh, that, that doesn't seem very plausible. I forgot about it. But some people read about it and said, like, oh, like, crap, that, that might really happen. So I'm going to stop it. And the way they tried to stop it was, well, I'm going to start the AI company and I'm going to build the nice version that doesn't kill everybody. And so there's like a large proportion of the leading people in this field are those kind of people. And so you've got this weird situation where you have this whole industry of people who are like kind of worried the thing they're going to build is going to kill everybody, but are convinced that like better that they build it than somebody else. And um, the rest of the world that kind of didn't take this stuff seriously um, is kind of catching up. And so over time, I think you'll see this view become less prominent just because like everybody else will, um, you know, won't find it as persuasive. And um, now everybody obviously does need to take pay attention because even if it's not going to kill us, it's an important technology. But yeah, there's this kind of leg where I think the rest of the world is just kind of starting to pay attention. What about regulation? I see both sides of this argued out online. On the one hand, you have people who may not think that AI is going to kill everyone, but are worried that if the government doesn't get involved and set the rules, 
that their results could be terrible. And then on the other hand, you have the free market types who say, no, no, if you if you impose heavy regulation on AI, then you're going to get a handful of companies that crowd everyone else out because the smaller companies won't be able to innovate or compete. And that's going to set us back for no real reason. I think the thing that makes it hard to talk about this is, is AI is going to be used in so many different ways. And there's so many different AI technologies that I think there definitely are areas where where leg- regulation would make sense. I mean, we mentioned medical devices. I'm, I'm not going to say the FDA is like the perfect vehicle, but certainly I think if you're going to use AI for diagnosing diseases, I, I would want to have some kind of regulatory framework. Um, but but again, like we, we already have those, so it's not clear you need new regulation for that. Um, similarly with self-driving car, like we had a pretty hands-off approach, which I think is mostly appropriate. Um, but certainly if these start getting deployed to scale, I'm going to want some regulation to make sure it's not you know malfunctioning and running people over. But I think the regulation people talk about most is the kind of very broad regulation that says any of what's called foundation models, which are these like very powerful like large language models that the Biden administration passed a executive order a few months ago requiring any foundation models above a certain size to have certain reporting requirements. And the expectation is that might be the first step to then have other sorts of regulations applied to those. I'm not convinced that that's necessary or helpful. So that's the big category. I assume that the way that the United States stays safe from the potential downsides of AI is to be better at it than other countries. Are we? How do we stay that way if we are? And if we're not, who is leading this? I think it's hard to generalize about this because there are many different kinds of AI. And it's not obvious to me that these large language models are going to be militarily significant. Um, I'm sure there's some applications that will be useful, but one of the most obvious types of AI that, that's you know, militarily significant is drones. And there, I think China is probably a little ahead of us. And there's, there's many types of drones, but like we've seen in, the, in Ukraine, for example, drones seem to have given an advantage to the defenders because you have these very cheap drones that can be fired at, a, fired at very long distances to like strike enemy vehicles. So I think it's an open question, kind of where the military balance of power lies with these kind of new technologies. And like, I, I kind of hope we never find out because like, I, I do think that it, it, it's either us or China are kind of the, the leading countries. And the only way we'd really find out is if there were a war between them. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely, it can be militarily important. I th- definitely think there's a US interest. I mean, one reason you wouldn't want really strict regulation is I think we do want, if these technologies are going to be developed, I'd rather have them developed here than somewhere else that might be more friendly to uh, Russia or China. I saw a prediction the other day, maybe it was via you, that the economic growth that will be yielded by an economy with advanced AI development could hit 30%. Where are you on that? <laughs> um, I, I think that's very implausible. The idea there is the people who expect this like super intelligent AI, they expect to enable also very rapid progress in robotics. So before I was pointing out that like most jobs involve doing things in the physical world, you've got plumbers or nurses, people like that and need to like interact with other human beings or work on physical systems. The scenario for really fast growth is you get super intelligent AI and that it helps us get very rapid progress in robotics. And in 10 or 15 years, you end up with literal androids walking around that can you know bipedal and have fine motor skills and stuff like that. That doesn't sound very likely to me. I, mean, I actually want to do more reporting on kind of where robotics is and how far we are from that. But A, I don't think we're going to get that rapid of progress in robotics if this would be a thing. Um, but B, I, th- I think people, it's hard to think clearly, I think, about 
the nature of jobs. So, so many jobs have physical components, but also many have kind of human to human components. So you think, for example, about childcare, um, even if you built a robot that could do all the mechanical aspects of childcare that could, you know, give your baby a bottle or change its diaper or whatever, like you're still not going to give your baby to a robot. You're going to want to give it to a human being. And I think there's actually a lot of jobs like that. Um, Again, nursing is an example or fitness instructors or teachers. And so I think even in this very sci-fi scenario where you have very capable robots, I think there's going to be a big chunk of the economy where people are going to prefer to have a human being uh, provide the service. And so definitely I think AI is likely to accelerate economic growth over the next few years, but I'm imagining like three or 4% growth, not 30. So you wrote this week, I think, on Twitter, a lot of bad thinking about AI flows from inappropriately anthropomorphizing AI systems. What does that mean? We were talking before about these people who think the AIs are going to go rogue and take over. And I think one of the, the fallacies there is assuming that if you have a system with human level intelligence, which I think certainly think it's possible that these systems will continue becoming more sophisticated. And at some point, it'll be able to accomplish many of the intellectual tasks that a human can. But I think there's an assumption that if you have a high level of intelligence, you're also going to have other characteristics that we associate like with humans, like um, greed, like desire for power, like um, kind of having long range goals, uh, desire for autonomy. And it's just not obvious. It just doesn't seem that often likely that that's the case. Like none of the AI or robotic systems we have now have those kind of characteristics. I mean, the large language model, you can certainly ask it to pretend it's a rogue AI or a person with ambitions, but really all it does is it predicts the next word. And when you turn it off, it's off and it, it doesn't have any you know, goals or anything. And so the assumption that intelligent thing is also going to be an ambitious thing or a greedy thing or a dangerous thing. I think people are importing their intuitions about humans into their ideas about, about AI systems. Another example of this is that there's a big controversy about whether you can copyright the output of an AI system like these image net. And the, the position of the copyright office is that if you use one of these image models to produce a an image that you can't copyright the image because you didn't create that the AI did. Um, and I don't really think that's the right way to work about it. I see it as no different than if you like use Photoshop to create an image, you are still the author because the Photoshop is a tool you used it, but, you, but you're still ultimately the one who created it. I think that as we get more comfortable with these tools and realize they're not people, they're just a new kind of tool that it'll be obvious that the right approach is you're the author, you use the tool to create the thing. And so, so you still get copyrighted. What do you think about the use of AI as a permanent or smart personal assistant? I read a piece I remember where this was now. It might have been Scientific American, in which it was argued that in a few years' time, it would be possible for AI to read a whole bunch of books on your behalf and then know what you're like and then recommend them to you. And you could apply this in lots of different ways. And the, the implication of this in the very long run was that, in a sense, this would become an extension of you, not to the extent that it took you over when you died or something, but that it made you a lot smarter and quicker than you would otherwise be. Something like that is likely to happen. I mean, you think about Google, like I, I like, I, I feel like I'm much more capable at doing certain kinds of tasks because I can Google things. And, you know, I think people have gotten worse at remembering things natively because, They've just gotten used to there's certain kind of facts about the world where there's no reason to remember it because you can pull it up 
you know, in, in 10 seconds using Google and Wikipedia. And so definitely, I think the way people will work will change. And yeah, certain types of rote skills that they would have honed on their own in the future, they'll just delegate to AI. I'll, I'll be really interesting to see what happens to writing, because I do think one of the things that um, these language models will do is it will allow pretty much anybody to produce kind of a minimum level written piece. I mean, I, th- I think like professional writers like us, I don't personally find it that helpful because I like to think my writing's like above average and it produces kind of average writing. But if you're somebody with limited literacy or English is not your first language, you're going to be able to write an email that sounds like a totally normal American. And I'm not sure what will happen. Like if, if you're then a high school student and you're in English class learning how to write an essay, maybe you'll say like, why do I have to do this? Like I could, you know, in the same way that like, if it, when you have a calculator, you're like, why do I do the arithmetic? And you could say, well, you know, you understand it better. But anyway, so I, I think that um, we are going to see a lot of shifts in what skills are valued and what things people kind of prioritize in the workplace. And I think it's, it's like way too early to predict how that's going to shake out, but I definitely think it will be important. I mean, that raises a question about the future of journalism. If you're Christopher Hitchens, you're probably fine because people read you for your style. But if you are a local journalist and your job is really to relate facts in a presentable and comprehensible way, why could you not be replaced by AI even now? I think that is completely correct, but I also think it's kind of not new. Journalism has been a brutal business for 10 or 20 years now, and it's largely because with increased competition, like it's already been the case that if all you're doing is repeating facts, there's like lots and lots of 22-year-olds out there that are willing to do that for cheaper than an experienced journalist. And so I think the trend you've seen where the journalists that thrive are the ones that bring either unique insights or unique sources or, like you said, a really unique writing style. Those are the ones that, that thrive, I think. AI is going to accelerate that. And the bar for good journalism will be higher. But on the flip side, I think that especially as content becomes commoditized, people will really appreciate having distinctive voices and distinctive insights. And so I definitely think there's going to be room for for journalists if if you have something unique to offer, but you'll we'll have to work a little harder to, to do that. So perhaps a related question, but one of the key issues in the recent strike in Hollywood was resistance to the use of AI within movie production. Now, this was specifically caused by the movie studios asking extras if they could scan them and then use them in the background of scenes in other contexts. And so we're not quite yet talking about replacing Tom Cruise with AI. But I read an interesting piece recently in which it was argued that there might be a place perhaps not for replacing tom cruise but for replacing mid-level actors who wouldn't need to be paid who wouldn't get sick who wouldn't have demands who wouldn't flub their lines and so on with ai i've also seen it argued that many models won't actually exist. And I can't get away on Twitter from the examples of this. I don't know which company it is, but they keep showing me this picture of, you know, a girl with a backpack on a train. And it looks pretty realistic. I'm sure in five years it will look more realistic. That person doesn't exist. That person doesn't have demands, doesn't need health insurance. <laughs> you know, do, do you see this as a, as a potential use for it? Oh, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, I would say I'm, um, I think people are over 
overexcited about the impact on the kind of broad economy of the kind of real jobs people do that have implications in the physical world. But I think the impacts on the cultural industries could be quite large. And absolutely, I think um, movies in particular, I, I believe a few months ago, um, the James Earl Jones signed a deal with Disney to license his voice for future movies. And so all oh, future wow. Darth Vader movies will feature the J- voice of James Earl Jones. Even after you're dead, they'll just have the, the virtual James Earl Jones, which will, like, say, the lines. And so you can imagine a future where maybe it's not that Tom Cruise gets replaced. Maybe Tom Cruise signs a deal where every movie in the future has a 25-year-old Tom Cruise as a leading actor, or, you know, maybe 10% of movies do. So, yeah, there's, there's like, a lot of different ways this could go. It's, like, really hard to predict. But um, absolutely, yeah, I think... I mean, already we've seen... You know, the, the Marvel, one of the things that made these like Marvel superheroes and, and sci fi movies so successful is that CGI has allowed us to mix real and virtual things in increasingly complicated ways. Um, AI, I think, is going to accelerate that even more. And you'll be able to not only have, you know, spaceships and monsters, but also like a mix of real and virtual people. And, you know, if you want to have a crowd of 100,000 people, you can just like whip that up with a few lines of code. So it's going to have, I think it's going to have a big impact on, on Hollywood, although I'm not close enough to that to kind of predict exactly what it's going to look like. All right, let me finish by asking you what you personally are the most excited about with AI and the most worried about with AI. So in terms of excitement, I do think that the the biggest potential impact is probably in the area of medicine. Um, Like I said before, I I think it's a little bit still a ways off, but one of the most significant, I think, scientific breakthroughs in this area is that there's a a big scientific problem where if you have a DNA sequence that codes for a protein, one of the big problems scientists have had is predicting how will that sequence of amino acids, what structure will it have? How will the protein fold that itself? And this used to be something where a biologist would work for months on a single protein and try to predict what's the structure of this protein. And about three years ago, DeepMind, which is part of Google, built a AI system that's similar to large language models to work on this problem. Um, and they basically solved it. They now have structures for I think it's millions of proteins where just now biologists know the structure of a protein. Now, I don't think that that's like by itself, not like a medical breakthrough, but I think it seems very likely that that is going to catalyze lots of future medical breakthroughs. And so I think things like that are likely to happen in medicine because, you know, biology is in some sense, like a very information intensive kind of thing like DNA and, and chemistry and so forth. And so I suspect we'll have rapid progress in medicine as a result of AI, although, again, I'm not like close enough to say like exactly how that'll be. So I think that's probably going to be the most exciting application. In terms of what I'm worried about, I definitely, one thing I'm worried about, I I think, is facial recognition, because we're starting to see facial facial recognition has gotten really, really good. Um, I don't know if you've tried some of these apps, but there are apps now where you can take a single photograph of someone, upload it to to one of these face search engines, and it will show you other pictures on the internet of that same person. And so you can imagine really tr- creepy, you know, applications. Of this. Let's say you're a young woman, you go into a bar, somebody hits on you, you turn them down. If they like snap your picture, they might be able to, f- they might be able to search for you, find your identity, and then you'll show up at your home or your work the next day. So this has implications for that. It has implications for criminal justice. There have been a number of cases where um, people have been wrongly arrested based on low quality facial recognition. And so I, this is this actually is an area where I would like to see some regulation because I, mean, I think it's pretty bipartisan. I think even very conservative people are concerned about governments in particular misusing this kind of technology, and there's very little regulation of it right now. Timothy, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Thank you. This was fun. And that's all we've got time for this week. Thank you to my guest, Timothy B. Lee. 
Thank you to the AI chatbot that replaced me on this show. Thank you to Luther Abel for a life well lived. Thank you to Boiling Rug for listening and hating me as much as he does. Thank you to you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.